0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkel and coming up on the program, the new book, Florida Made, The 25 Most Important Figures Who Shaped the State.
1: The main question that we asked ourselves was kind of the but for test. But for this person and what they did in Florida history, how would Florida be different?
2: We'll discuss the city of Detroit, Florida, if you're looking at a map for Detroit, you wouldn't be able to find it. But look under Florida City, and that's the area that we're talking about today.
0: And we'll talk about the Hard Rock Memorabilia Collection in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: The great man theory became popular among 19th century historians, the idea that influential, powerful people have a decisive historical impact. From the late 19th century to the present, most historians embrace the concept that societal changes allow great people to emerge and help bring existing ideas to fruition. The new book, Florida Made, The 25 Most Important Figures Who Shaped the State, is co-authored by former U.S. Senator George Lemieux and writer Laura Mize.
1: The main question that we asked ourselves was uh, kind of the the but-for test. But for this person and what they did in Florida history, um, how would Florida be different? So to us, it was not enough that someone did something influential. We looked for people who, who did things that, uh, had they been done at a different time, probably would have had a different impact, or things that no one else likely would have done.
0: Lemieux and Mize have created a ranked list of the most important people in Florida history. Number 18 is Don Pedro Menendez de Aviles, the Spanish conquistador who founded St. Augustine, the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in what is now the United States. Number 23 on the authors list is George Washington Jenkins, Jr., the founder of Public Supermarkets, Florida's largest private employer.
1: We interviewed a number of historians and professors and uh, subject area experts on topics like the space program, um, Florida agriculture, the Native American population in Florida. So that was a primary resource for us was interviews of experts. We also consulted original documents from the Florida State Archives and some other sources, county archives and things like that. And then we consulted a vast selection of newspaper articles, magazine articles, other well written books about Florida history.
0: The book Florida Made begins with a chapter on the person Lemieux and Mize have determined is the number one most influential person in Florida history, Henry Flagler. This entrepreneur built a railroad down Florida's east coast all the way to Key West, helping to establish cities where his trains would stop. Laura Mize.
1: Henry Flagler uh, did more, we believe, to Construct and build the infrastructure of Florida and draw people to Florida than anyone else has done. And he did it at a time that was really pivotal for the state. A few years after he finished, we had the First World War. And we had the Second World War and we had the Great Depression, all things that could have derailed significant development in Florida if Henry Flagler had not started when he did. So he accomplished quite a lot in the period of time that he worked here. And it, was, uh, it laid the foundation for people to um, really start to move to Florida and develop a population here uh, before those kind of society-altering events took place.
0: Floridians have mixed emotions about Walt Disney, but Lemieux and Mize have determined that his impact on Florida tourism makes Disney the number two most influential person in Florida history.
1: Yes, Walt Disney um, made something of central Florida where really it was, you know, kind of a collection of small towns and it was a swampland. Without his influence, we believe that Orlando would still today look a lot more like Lakeland does, which is a perfectly nice place. We like Lakeland, but it doesn't have, you know, world influence. It's not a place that people come to from all over the world. So Walt Disney, in building Walt Disney World, where he did, he allowed the middle of Florida to develop and also really put Florida on the map as a place where people wanted to come to from all over the world. And of course, other theme parks and many other attractions have been built in the Orlando area that really are there because Disney went there first.
0: You might be surprised at Lemieux and Mize's third choice for the most important person in Florida history. It's Fidel Castro, former leader of Cuba.
1: If you think about what Florida would be like absent the influence of Fidel Castro in Cuba, I think the picture is much different. The things that Fidel Castro did in Cuba really pushed the best and brightest of Cuban society out of his country and pushed them to Florida. Most of the people who left Cuba during that time period and came to the United States settled in South Florida. And they created a new identity for that part of the state. They also made it a place where other people from Latin America could come and create a new life for themselves and feel comfortable. So it's a place that draws people now from many other parts of the world because Fidel Castro kind of pushed the best of his people, as I said, out of his country.
0: There are people alive today who can remember when mosquitoes were so bad in Florida that if you placed your hand on the inside of a porch screen for just a few seconds, a black outline of your hand comprised of mosquitoes would remain on the outside of the screen. For his work in mosquito control, Dr. Joseph Porter is number seven on the Florida Made List. Laura Mize.
1: Dr. Joseph Porter, this is one of my favorite chapters in the book because Many people, I think, do not understand the magnitude of the mosquito problem in Florida before the modern era of mosquito control. There were enormous black clouds of mosquitoes that would float across the state, and they were just a plague to people. They were apocalyptic. They spread disease. They killed whole herds of cattle. They obviously, you know, mosquitoes bite, and that's a terrible thing to endure if you encounter a whole cloud of them. So people didn't want to live in Florida. Dr. Joseph Porter took the science that was developing in other parts of the world around uh, mosquito control and understanding how mosquitoes spread disease, and he brought it to Florida. He educated people in ways that they could understand through his health train displays. And in the span of two years, he managed to wipe out yellow fever from the state of Florida, making it a place where people felt safe to live. So starting in 1920, we then had a significant population boom that I think, absent his work, would not have happened.
0: Few of us living in Florida today could imagine being here without air conditioning and refrigeration. For his advancements in artificial cooling, Lemieux and Mize have named Dr. John Gorey the eighth most important person in Florida history.
1: He started his work to develop some form of cooling um, in an effort to help his yellow fever patients. He noticed that in the cooler times of the year, people didn't seem to suffer from yellow fever as much. And he he knew that his yellow fever and malaria patients were, you know, they were burning up, they were sweating. He wanted some way to bring them relief. So he developed the precursor to modern air conditioning um, and a way to create ice And this didn't have the curative effect for yellow fever and malaria that he had hoped. And it also, sadly, did not really take off in society like he had hoped. He tried to market his invention, and he was opposed by the ice barons of the day, the people from the Northeast who sold ice to Florida and other warm parts of the country, They opposed him, and they basically did a smear campaign saying that his ice was full of bacteria, none of his inventions were worthwhile. People did not understand, even though they were suffering from the heat, why air conditioning and artificial refrigeration could be helpful. So he died destitute, but his invention was a precursor to what we enjoy as the air conditioning and refrigeration in Florida today.
0: A problem with the great man approach to history is that it can lead to a lack of diversity, with mostly rich white men as the focus. In the Florida-made list of the most important figures to shape the state, three of the 25 are women. Environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is ranked number 15, the mother of Miami, Julia Tuttle, is number 10, and educator Mary McLeod Bethune, the only African-American on the list, is number 16 laura mize says that diversity was a concern for the authors
1: it was something that we took seriously and we have a number of people of color and hispanic people a native american john Gorey. many people do not know he was part hispanic his mother was a hispanic house servant who took her master's uh, last name so we did include people um, who are not white men who made significant advances in Florida, and I think we're proud of we're proud of the list that we put together.
0: Lemieux and Mize conclude their Florida Made book with speculation about the future of the state.
1: Florida's population growth over the past sixty years or so has just skyrocketed, and we don't see a reason for that to slow down. Really, certainly we have challenges of uh, water supply and sea level rise and things like that. But people, despite those challenges, people continue to come to Florida. And we, I think, are doing a good job of learning to address things. We believe Florida has two super regions. One of them is the Central Florida super region, which extends from Tampa to Orlando to Jacksonville. And that area is predicted to become an area that will hold nearly $20 people itself. There's disagreement about how fast that will happen, but certainly if you drive through that area, you can see that those cities are kind of merging together, and there's a huge economic impact in that. Also, South Florida, we see people continuing to come up from Latin America, as we talked about earlier, due to economic instability, political instability. They're bringing their resources, their families, their businesses to South Florida, And people are also moving to South Florida from the Northeastern United States, bringing their assets down there and uh, making new lives for themselves. So we believe that Southeast Florida in particular is becoming and, and will someday be the capital of the Americas as people from the Northeastern United States, people from Europe, people from Latin America all converge in Southeast Florida.
0: Laura Mize is co-author of the book *Florida Made: The 25 Most Important Figures Who Shaped the State* with former U.S. Senator George Lemieux.
3: Ooh,
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program and see our web extras, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's (laughs) myfloridahistory.org.
3: Oh Detroit like I do Nobody knows Oh Detroit like I do The reason I know it I rambled it through end.
0: That's blues man Tampa Red singing about the city of Detroit. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, everyone knows Detroit, Michigan, but there was also a Detroit, Florida, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. At the beginning of the 20th century, when South Florida was really beginning to develop quite rapidly, there were a lot of land speculators selling property. A lot of that property was underwater 10 years prior, but because of the massive state-funded drainage efforts, a lot of this land was, was now becoming available. So people were moving from all over the country, and in fact, all over the world, to settle uh, what is now South Dade County in the southeastern part of Florida. And, and Detroit, Florida, was really a product. It was a quintessential Florida development story in the early 20th century. A lot of the early uh, residents came here prior to 1910. Uh, many of these people were from Kansas, actually, from the Topeka area. Uh, again, responding to to advertisements, they came down to Florida and, and tried essentially tried their luck at uh, at eking out a living uh, in the and really the swamplands in the virgin forests of, of southeast Florida. And, and soon more people moved down. And, and the reason actually that the name Detroit came about is the, the land development company that was owned by the Tatum Brothers, which at the time, uh, the, the Tatum Brothers owned something like 200,000 acres, so a huge portion of, of the southern part of the state of Florida they actually owned and were developing and selling off parcels. The Tatum Brothers were advertising heavily in Detroit, Michigan. So a lot of these early residents that moved down here were from Detroit. So when they moved here, they of course named the city after the city they were from, uh, Detroit, Michigan. And that's really where, where the name, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, But these people moved down here with the promise of an egalitarian kind of life. There was a lot of acreage that was available. All you had to do was move down here and, and start developing it, and you could turn it into your own Eden, essentially, is how it was advertised.
0: You have here a collection of some really interesting photographs from early settlers of Detroit, Florida.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is is actually called the Detroit, Florida Photographic Collection. And this entire collection came from one family, uh, the Brown family that was donated to the society about four or five years ago. And the patriarch of that family was a gentleman named James Benjamin Brown. And Brown was actually a native of Tennessee, of Knoxville, Tennessee. And just as I, I described earlier, uh, it was that quintessential story. He saw an advertisement in a newspaper that said, according to family lore, quote, go to Florida, dot, 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 and get Rich, unquote. (laughs) And that was enough for him. It was enough to sell him on that idea of, again, starting his own Eden, of bringing his family of 11 children and his wife down here to Florida to to kind of eke out their own living. So he and a friend came to South Dade. Uh, He went ahead and and purchased some land. He also applied for a land grant at that time period in South Dade County, went back to Tennessee, but his wife Sarah was not sold on the idea. Uh, She stayed in Knoxville for a number of years. He moved down in about 1910. Uh, he decided to set up a mobile sawmill, so he saw all of these settlers that were moving down, and they needed lumber. They needed to build homes, so that was his niche. He decided to build an industry around this this sawmill. He had a a steam-powered tractor, essentially, that had a large belt that would attach to this mobile trailer, and he could cut all the lumber on site. In fact, we're looking at... A photograph, this is from 1910, and we can actually see that steam powered tractor. I mean it's a it's a marvel of a machine, especially by early 20th century standards. So he invested heavily in this in this machinery and in the infrastructure, but he'd travel around to different homesteads. He would mill the lumber on site and people could, could build their homes. Now it took a number of years before his wife decided to move down here, but in 1912, she brought their eleven children down here to Florida and they set up a small homestead in, in South Dade. Now the, the town of Detroit uh, was still fairly underdeveloped, so the closest town was actually Homestead, which was just to the north, and then outside of that, it was Miami, was the closest town. So the family actually lived in Homestead because it was the only, that was actually the closest school. So all the children that uh, went to school in Homestead uh, while Mr. Brown worked at the lumber mill that was a little bit outside of town in in Detroit and and further west actually in what is now the Everglades National Park. And some of these photographs are really a wonderful uh, view of life during that very short time period in the early 20th century when this development was really happening at a fairly quick rate. You can see here a photograph of a Seminole Indian waiting at one of the uh, train depot stops in in Homestead. We have uh, great photographs of the train depot stop uh, with the name Detroit. Um, there's a great view of the ice plant, which was one of the largest in South Florida at the time being constructed. Great views of the canal that was being built to connect the community with uh, the Biscayne Bay area so that goods and material could be moved in and out. So what we get to see really through the eyes of this family, the growth and development of South Dade County. Now, Detroit, Florida only lasted a couple of years, but there's still a town there, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. So a lot of the early settlers who came down here from Detroit weren't happy with the land deals that they struck. So they ended up leaving, moving back to Michigan. The few families that stayed behind actually changed the name to Florida City. So in 1914, when the town was actually incorporated, they incorporated that as Florida City. And that's as it exists today. So if you're looking at a map for Detroit, you wouldn't be able to find it. But look under Florida City, and that's the area that we're talking about today. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
3: Goodbye Detroit, hello Tennessee. Goodbye Detroit, hello Tennessee. I got a good gal there, mellow as she can be.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Hard rock cafes and casinos around the world display a wide variety of rock memorabilia. The most extensive collection of hard rock artifacts is housed in Orlando. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida.
4: I recently sat down with Jeff Nolan, the official memorabilia historian of Hard Rock. He talked with me about the Hard Rock Music Memorabilia Collection, the largest and most valuable collection of its kind in the world. The memorabilia collection began in 1979 with a Red Fender Lead II guitar donated by Eric Clapton. Since then, the collection has grown into an archive that includes over 80,000 artifacts.
5: Really, the single biggest collection of rock and roll memorabilia on the face of the earth, and I'm including the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the EMP in that conversation, is in central Florida because it's the warehouse for hard rock. Everything that hard rock owns goes through that warehouse at some point or another. And on any given day, there's 20,000, 30,000 pieces in there.
2: The memorabilia
5: collection is really unique as museums go because it's never in the same place at the same time. And there are over 80,000 pieces now. I think we crossed 80,000 last year or the year before. So there are quite a few pieces. And unsurprisingly, there are a lot of instruments and a lot of clothing. But I think that the ones that get me the most are like handwritten stuff and oddball things. I love the pieces of memorabilia that a hard rock guest will more often than not just walk right past and not even realize
4: I asked Jeff Nolan to tell me about some of his favorite pieces in the collection.
5: If you go to the Orlando Cafe and you go upstairs in one of the little side rooms, you kind of have to go looking for this. On the wall, there's a frame with the contents of a wallet all splayed out in the display and the wallet itself. People walk right by it. It was Tommy Allsup's wallet. Tommy was Buddy Holly's guitar player on the winter dance party tour, the 59 tour, the plane crash tour, right? And he very famously lost a coin toss with Richie Valens for the last seat on the airplane. Tommy had a check waiting for him, or a letter, I can't remember which, sent general delivery to the post office in, I think, Fargo, North Dakota, where the bands were headed. He wanted Buddy to go pick it up for him. Since Buddy was on the plane, he was going to get there quicker. Buddy took his whole wallet with him. So the wallet that's on display in the Orlando Cafe came out of the wreckage. So it is a perfect time capsule of the Buddy Holly plane crash. It's absolutely unreal. And if you look at all the stuff that's in the wallet, you can like, walk a timeline from when he left to join the tour to the very last thing he ever put in that wallet, which was a Western Union receipt. It's all displayed right there in this one little frame. Stuff like that I love.
4: Jeff Nolan told me about another favorite piece in the collection, located in the John Lennon room at the Hard Rock Cafe in Orlando.
5: You know, we have the wicker back love seat that was John Lennon's that he sat in daily when first he and Cynthia and then later he and Yoko still lived in Weybridge uh, in London, his first, like, I'm a rich rock star house. And it's got a hole in it where his elbow over time wore through the wicker because it was just like his lounge and seat. It's very, very cool. Love stuff like that.
4: The Hard Rock memorabilia collection contains thousands of guitars, including several from Florida native Tom Petty.
5: We have a lot of Tom Petty's guitars. He was very good friends with the Hard Rock. When we would get a guitar from Tom, he would write us a note with it, just saying, oh man, this is my, you know, nineteen fifty eight telecaster. I love this guitar, I used it on such and such. And he had his own kind of a little goofy looking stationery. So if you look in our files where we keep those sort of things for our, you know, for our records, when you get to the Tom Petty section, it's like looking at memorabilia because it's all handwritten notes from Tom Petty. It's fantastic. Like everybody else who cares about music, we were gutted when he died. That was just overwhelming. But he was a great guy and an American treasure for sure. And a Florida treasure for
4: sure. The Hard Rock memorabilia collection grows larger every day. Through the collection, Hard Rock preserves music history while also honoring the legacies of musicians. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.